Welcome to the Math of Thai Podcast. My name is Mike, and we are journeying through the Gospel of Luke. So glad you've decided to join us. Pray that this is a blessing for you. Uh, if, if you are enjoying these podcasts and enjoying these studies, we ask that you leave us a, a five-star review. That really does help us out. Uh, gets our message out to many more people to check it out. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can get updates when new uh, episodes come out and new studies and new interviews. Uh, and then make sure to share it with a friend that might enjoy it as well. And uh, we'll see what the Lord does with this. But we are wrapping up the first section of the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at the birth and uh, uh, nativity stories of John and Jesus. Luke has laid them side by side so that we can see these two characters uh, born for a purpose and then beginning to grow and develop into that purpose that God has called them for. And as we come to the end of chapter 2 today, we're going to see Jesus uh, fulfilling the birth nativity scene and how Jesus will become the centerpiece of the remainder of the gospel. There's a transition from the focus on the families and these early characters in the life of Jesus to the life of Jesus himself as the Messiah. It's an important transition for Luke as he moves this narrative story forward and uh, begins to talk about the salvation of God through the adult person, Jesus. So uh, open up your Bibles, if you have it, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 36. In the last episode, we looked at Simeon, this older man who uh, was in the temple one day. He was a prophet there, and he came and... uh, found Jesus when Jesus was being presented in the temple. And he had an incredible uh, pronunciation over Jesus, talking about the uh, the ministry of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and how Jesus was a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And so it was an incredible statement, a summary statement there of who Jesus was. It was that fifth of the nativity songs that we saw. And then we talked about... Uh, Um, Mary kind of thinking about these things and holding them up for herself, looking forward to what God would be doing. In verse 36, it's a continuation of the same event. Jesus is at the temple. He's being presented by Mary and Joseph, where he would have received his name. Mary would be presenting herself for ritual purity, according to the Jewish law. And um, they would be uh, anointing Jesus and, and just introducing Jesus as a family member and into the community of the Jews at that time. And it says there in verse uh, 36, it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from the time she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna here is an interesting character. She, First of all, it says that she is a prophetess. She is a female prophet. And this simply indicates that she had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit for this role. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not come upon all believers yet. So the Holy Spirit would anoint certain individuals for specific roles. Many of the kings, uh, all of the prophets, uh, the 70 elders that would have surrounded Moses were all anointed in this way. But it was not the common experience for a person to receive the Holy Spirit for that role. So as a prophetess, she would have had the anointing of the Holy Spirit, had the words of God, and, and, and 
been in the ministry of the Lord, just like we see other prophets from the Old Testament doing so. We could also look in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, and we see that there are the four daughters of Philip who also serve a similar role as a prophetess. And so it's not an unfamiliar role, something the people would have been very uh, familiar with and respectful of and welcoming of. But Anna is a unique person within this account here. The next thing it tells us about her there is that she is a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And this is an interesting thing. She's a widow. We'll get to that in, in a second here. And she's not known by her husband's name, which would have been unique because when she got married, she would have left her family and been assumed into her husband's family and taken the identity of her husband's family. So when her husband passes away, she would have been known as the wife of so-and-so, the widow of so-and-so. But here she's associated with her father and not her, her deceased husband. It's likely that her, her father long outlived her deceased husband. And so her identity would have returned back to her father and her father's house, which she would have maintained. Her role with her husband was very short. We'll see in just a minute. It was only seven years. And so her identity never fully was assumed into her husband's family. And now her father is Fanuel. Uh, the name itself is not significant so far as I know, but he's of the tribe of Asher. And Asher was one of the lost northern tribes, if you say lost, quote unquote. Uh, Asher was uh, the second son of Zilpah, who was the handmaid of Leah. He was Jacob's eighth son. You can read all about uh, that in Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. Also in Genesis 35, verses 16 through 26, we see those genealogies laid out. And so Asher was one of those tribes that would have been taken in the, the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC as a northern tribe of Israel. And uh, they would have been taken away never to return. Uh, you always had a remnant there, but the tribe itself was never fully uh, returned. And so that the fact that Anna is identified with the tribe of Asher it is important to note that they're retaining the history and the tribal identity, the, the uh, genealogical identity of their people which is very important. Even after the captivity and destruction of the tribes, even after uh, all that they had gone through, they still maintained a unique identity and, and their heritage uh, as Israelites. And it's important to note that Anna is being uh, rooted here as a Jew, as one of the 12 tribes of Israel. She's being located within that community because she's not a foreign voice coming in trying to give credence to Jesus. She's not an outside presence. She's one of their own. And so that, that was a very important aspect for the Jews to be able to receive uh, the message to receive Jesus. Jesus was receiving validation from respectable, identified Jews at this time. It also tells us next that, that she was advanced in years. And there's been debate on how old she actually was. Some have said she's about 84. Others have said she could be as old as 105 it tells us that she was a widow at a young age, that she lived with her husband for seven years. Uh, and now, if we wanted to count this back the way that people get those numbers, is that uh, a young girl would marry generally around the age of 14 or 15, in their mid-teens there. And if she lived with her husband for about seven years, then she would be about 22 when her husband died. And now she's at least 84. So that's a quite a long time as a widow and an older woman there, she would have remained a widow the rest of her days. Some say that she was 105 in the sense that um, 
If she married around 14 or 15 and then her husband passed away at age, let's say she was 22, then some have read into this passage that she was a widow for 84 years, which would make her about 105 at that point. And so that's where those two dates come from. It really doesn't matter. She was an older woman, lots of history, lots of uh, time learning about the Lord and growing in the Lord and, and uh, respected in the way she conducted herself. And the way she does that is she remained a widow the rest of her days. She was eligible to remarry. Um, she could have gone out and remarried another husband and, and found that security and found that life. But rather, she decided to commit herself and dedicate her life to the service of the Lord. And so her age itself would have been a respectful status. The fact that she was at least 84, um, perhaps over 100, that, that would have been respectful in that culture because of the, the age of the, uh, uh, the wisdom of the older people was highly respected. Uh, but then also the fact that she was a widow of that age was very important as well. And in Deuteronomy, Moses prophesies about the tribe of Asher, and you can see this in Anna's life. He says in Deuteronomy 33, 25, he says that your strength will equal your days. And here we find Anna, well advanced and aged, yet still active in the ministry and the service of God. And so her strength is equaling her days. God is sustaining her for his purposes and using her there in the temple. Now, Others would read the story of Luke, and there are some apocryphal books that they would have been reminded of. Now, the Apocrypha, if you're not familiar with that, are, are books that we do not consider canonical. We do not consider a part of the Bible inspired by God, but they were written generally by uh, believers. Some of them are historical type books. Some of them are uh, additions of, to scriptures. Some of them could be more devotional style books, um, and they are added to the Catholic Bible, some of the Orthodox uh, scriptures, uh, because of their value. They, they do have great value there. But in one of those books, there's a character by the name of Judith. And uh, many people, if they're familiar with that story, could compare Anna to Judith. And in that work, Judith is uh, someone who acts with great faith. She's this woman of courage and resolve who works to save the people of Jerusalem from the invading Assyrian army. So that would have taken them back to the last days of Asher, which would have been a, a great connection for Judith and Anna there. And so Judith was seen as a woman of prayer. She was a great leader of the people. She was a great orator, a great speaker. And she had great wisdom uh, that she was able to enact in that situation and help save Jerusalem. Judith also dies at the age of 105. And so perhaps that could have been related to the age of Anna in this account. But it was an interesting comparison that people could have made uh, regarding a faithful person in the history of Israel with Anna herself here with the same type of characteristic. Now, the way Anna conducts herself here is it, it tells us that she did not depart from the temple. Now, as a widow and specifically as a prophetess, she perhaps could have had a room there at the temple. Uh, they had rooms uh, prepared for those who serve and dedicate themselves to the work of the temple and the life of the temple. And it, it is provided to them so that they don't have to earn a living. And certainly as a widow, she would have been eligible for assistance from the community uh, to pay for her, her living and her life um, as a woman of no means who, who would have been poor at that sense. But uh, she could have been given a, a room there uh, as someone who is serving God, 
Or, or it could simply be a hyperbole meant that she, she's at the temple all the time. As an older woman, she's freed. She's not working. She's got all day free. Uh, she probably has no family left at this point. And so in, instead of going out in the community and doing other things, and, and either engaging work or begging or, or, or trying to find sustenance, she has dedicated herself to coming to the temple and being useful in service. She ha- is a woman with time and, and has dedicated herself to that purpose. We, we see a similar uh, instance uh, of a woman who found residency at the temple all the way back in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 22. Uh, There's the story of Huldah, who is a prophetess, and this is during the time of Josiah, a time of great revival where Judah is being uh, restored back to the true worship of God. And Huldah there is given a room in the temple uh, where she's allowed to stay and live in, in exchange for her service as a prophetess and her ministry to the people. And so uh, Anna would have had a similar type circumstance uh, as that, perhaps. Uh, but her lifestyle and what she's doing is somewhat unique. As a prophetess, we could expect her to be speaking the words of God to the people, and certainly there was no doubt that that occurred. But she was also worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So she wasn't just speaking to people, she was going to God on behalf of the people. A very priestly type ministry that she has here. And so she's worshiping, it says, with fasting. And and that was a unique thing to be doing because fasting was a statement to everybody that something is not well, something's gone wrong, that change is needed. And so Anna's fasting likely represented what we see mentioned there at the end of of this small section about Anna, uh, that she's got a hope for the redemption of God, that God is going to come and restore Israel. And she's fasting devoted to that idea that God is coming back to restore Israel. And so she's fasting, noting that Israel is not right and is in need of restoration. And she's fasting and praying that God would come and do that restoration in Israel. And she's dedicated herself to that purpose. And so it's an incredible ministry of this older woman who is dedicating her time, dedicating her life, dedicating all that she has to... uh, seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord's plan and looking for that redemption of Israel where God would fulfill his promises to them. And Anna here is directed um, through the temple uh, by the sovereignty of God. Uh, The size of Herod's temple at this time, this is the temple that Jesus would have been uh, dedicated in. It was built after the Babylonian captivity. As they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they rebuilt the temple there. It did not have the glory of the former temple built by Solomon. And so the older men that had seen that original temple were very discouraged by that, but they had a temple nonetheless. And then as Herod comes along some 400 years later, Herod was an Idumean, which was half Jewish. And he poured a lot of funds and investment into the temple in order to appease the Jewish people there of the community to keep the peace and to make his kingdom the greatest, if you will, within the Roman Empire. And so Herod built the temple out in incredible ways. He filled in valleys to, to create greater land space for the Temple Mount. He, he covered things in gold. He, 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 he added on courts and, and, and spaces uh, to make the temple truly a magnificent structure and a complex 
that, that would have been amazing. So it was a very large area with people coming and going, a bustle of activity. And this meeting here between Anna and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus seems to be a chance meeting. She just happened to stumble across them as they went across the courtyard. But Anna, being a prophetess directed by the Holy Spirit, we see this as a sovereign plan of God. God brought Anna to Jesus. It's, it could be possible that Anna had heard the blessing by Simeon just before this. Um, it, it could simply be that they've now departed from Simeon and Anna is the next one that they see. And she did not hear that. So um, she discerns the identity of the child, uh, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit as a prophet of God. And she has an incredible response to this. Verse 38, it says that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna sees this child and she sees what is before her, the Messiah, the one that she has been praying for, the one she has been fasting over. And she gives thanks to God because her prayers are answered. Her fasting has been heard. And then she speaks to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, all those who are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the anticipated restoration of the glory of the kingdom of God. She begins to talk about them. And, and that phrase, the, the redemption of Jerusalem, it, it's kind of an echo of several Old Testament passages. Uh, first, in Psalm chapter 130, verses 5 through 8, it says this. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so the idea of they're waiting for the redemption of is of Jerusalem. There's, God has promised to redeem and restore Israel. He's promised to forgive her of her iniquities and to redeem her back to a state of glory as his chosen people. And so that was something that they could have remembered back from the Old Testament. We also see in Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 8 through 10, it tells this. It says, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so, for those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, or the redemption of Jerusalem, as Anna says, she's talking to them about, your Messiah has come, the time of redemption has drawn near. And so she would go out and, and, and speak praises to God and thanks to God for his work in sending the Messiah because she's identified him as that. So again, it's another testimony of the identity of Jesus through these birth narratives. Luke is laying out a clear foundation from the very beginning of who this child is through multiple testimonies of multiple individuals, family members, uh, faithful Jewish servants, the, the cream of the crop of Jewish society, if you will, those who have the proper pedigree as well as the proper character, and then also from uh, God himself giving testimony through the angels. And as we see in Matthew, there is other foreign uh, representation of who this child is through the Magi coming and so on. And we'll talk about that in just a second here. 
So Luke has really laid a foundation of the identity of Jesus. And uh, as we move forward through the Gospels, he's clearly identified that Jesus is uh, holy. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And he's appointed for specific tasks and for specific duties that have been laid out throughout the Old Testament that the people should recognize. Now, in verses 39 and 40, we have a simple interlude that, that ties uh, the, the next section uh, to the birth narratives here. Verse 39 says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would have spent some time living in Bethlehem after the birth. And so we don't know exactly how long they stayed there, perhaps a couple of years. Uh, they had family in town and uh, no real immediate need to return to Nazareth. And uh, so perhaps they stayed there for a time. Um, we see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, Matthew has an account that occurs uh, in the in-between here, uh, verses 39 and 40 of, of Luke 2, where he talks about the Magi visiting from afar off. They had seen the star in the east and they began to travel. And they came and they found King Herod and asked him, where is this one who's been born the king of the Jews? And, and Herod says, I don't know, go find them. And so they go and find Jesus and they're warned not to return to Herod. And so they go back home, avoiding Herod. Herod becomes enraged. He becomes jealous. He becomes fearful that there is someone who is a competition to his throne. And so he commits what we call the slaughter of the innocents. He has every child under the age of two years old uh, throughout Judah uh, killed. Uh, that would have caused great mourning and great uh, desperation, as you can imagine, throughout that community. However, Jesus and Mary uh, and Joseph, having been warned, escaped prior to that slaughter. And they went into Egypt, uh, where they lived for a time. And so Luke leaves that out for some reason. He does not tell those events. Um, uh, we don't know why. Some have suggested that Luke was unaware of those, which seems highly unlikely for a skilled uh, researcher. Uh, for someone who's using these other accounts of the life of Jesus, um, uh, he would have certainly known about that, but it didn't seem to fit his purpose. Uh, so he's, he doesn't seem to have uh, uh, any reason to include that in his writing, so he leaves that out. He's got a, a, a goal, as we've seen from chapter 1, uh, verse 4, where he wants to give you certainty concerning the things that you've been taught, and that didn't fit into that agenda, so he leaves it out. But we can harmonize Matthew and Luke together. Uh, this, uh, verses 39 and 40, uh, would include that time frame of Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, their stories begin to sink again, and we see Jesus uh, returning back to his hometown in Nazareth, not coming back down to Bethlehem. And uh, after Egypt, uh, they would have heard that, that uh, Herod had died, Archelaus' son was ruling in Judea, it was safe for them to return home, and so they would have returned back to Galilee, back to their hometown Nazareth, not back down to Bethlehem. And Jesus would have matured and grown there. Um, and that's kind of where those go. Verse 39 kind of is a, a bookend to that section that begins in verse 21, where they leave to present Jesus in the temple. Uh, at the end of the eight days there, he was circumcised, and he's called Jesus, and he's given this name, and then they go to the temple, and at the end of that temple period, they return, that once they had performed everything, according to the law of the Lord that they were supposed to do for their purification and so on, they returned and went back to their life as normal. 
you can look at the growth of Jesus here and compare him to Samuel in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 20, uh, in both cases, the mother is the leading figure. Uh, we noted that throughout the, the, the presentation of Jesus in our last study. It's Mary who's uh, bringing and presenting the child at the temple. It's, it's the Lord showing, Mary, uh, showing favor upon the child, uh, just like he did with Samuel. And so there's some uh, great comparisons between Samuel and Jesus in that instance. But let's keep moving forward. In, in verse 41 uh, through 52, we are going to wrap up this chapter here about the, the birth and nativity accounts of uh, John and Jesus and see how Luke ties up this portion of the scriptures there. In verse 41, he says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this final episode is not just a, a tag on to the end of the nativity account. It's, it's an important account to the nativity story in the childhood of Jesus because it reminds us before we move forward into the ministry of Jesus and, and into the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies laid out there, it reminds us of the identity and the significance of interpreting these things correctly. In chapter 1, verses 31 to 32, uh, we have um, <clears throat> the angel Gabriel talking to Mary and, and predicting the birth of Jesus. And, and Gabriel announces there that the, the name of this child will be Jesus. He will be holy and he'll be called the Son of God. And up to this point, we see that Jesus has been named, chapter 2, verse 21. He was taken into the temple and named. He's been deemed holy in chapter 2, verse 23. But no one has up to that point identified him or called him as the Son of God. And so this section uh, in verses 48 and 49 especially, it takes care of that identification that was foretold by Gabriel in the announcement to Mary. And so Jesus is his name is identified, his, the fact that he's holy and that he's the son of God are all portrayed in this section and must be clearly understood before we move forward in the text here. There's also a comparison established here between John and Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 80, we see the concluding remarks about John and his birth and, and the beginning of his life. And those remarks anticipate his future ministry as a fulfillment of the prophecies of Malachi and some of the Old Testament. And so uh, here we find the concluding remarks about Jesus 
which give us a greater expectation about his ministry and his life. And so as we come to the end of chapter two, we're kind of on the edge of our seat about who are these guys and what are they going to do? We've had a taste of their purpose, a taste of what God is planning to do through them. But now the anticipation has built that how is God going to do this? And so we have a, a wonderful uh, cliffhanger, if you will, that, that Luke gives us as we look forward to uh, the ministries of John and the ministries of Jesus as young adults now beginning to take place. And then finally, this provides a summary of the birth narratives that Luke has been developing since chapter 1, verse 5. And in this last section, the focus shifts from the families of John and the families of Jesus to the person of Jesus himself. Uh, there's a transition from this old regime of Judaism uh, in which there's the, the priestly system. We see Zechariah uh, being that faithful priest back in chapter 1 with the wife Elizabeth, both from the lineage that's proper. We see Gabriel, the mighty angel, uh, that plays a significant role in Judaism, in the, the ministry of Daniel uh, back in Babylon and so on. And we, we see these characters that are clearly identified as a part of the Jewish community, faithful and true and righteous and respected. And that's the focus of the characters in the first two chapters. And then there's John who comes in the proper Jewish ways, taking what appears to be a, at least a partial Nazarite vow and being dedicated and set apart to the Lord. And then Jesus comes along as the promised Jewish Messiah from the proper lineage, fulfilling the covenant promises that God is making uh, to his, his people Israel. And so this Israeli account and the people involved in that have been so central to chapters 1 and 2 that we have a transition now from this old Judaism to a new thing happening as the Messiah comes on scene. Jesus is born and everything changes. All that has been prophesied is now being fulfilled. His coming, as it's properly interpreted and celebrated according to Old Testament text, when we look at that and we see who Jesus is in light of the promises of God, we now begin to see the way that God is going to fulfill his promises and redeem Israel and restore Israel. And even how he's going to reach out past Israel to the Gentiles that everyone might be blessed through him, just as was promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic blessing or Abrahamic covenant. So we have that, that incredible transition point where Jesus becomes the central focus of the gospel, the central focus of the narrative from this point forward. Now, we see in the first couple of verses here, that, that in verses 41 and 42, that they're traveling to the Feast of Passover. Now, every devout, faithful Jewish family would attend certain ceremonies and festivals as required. There were three under the Old Testament law that each, uh, at least male, was required to attend, Passover being the primary of such. Uh, of those festivals. And it was not uncommon for the, the, the entire family to go. And so we, we see them as a family attending these ceremonies, attending these festivals as devout, faithful members of the Jewish community in true worship and honor and respect to God. And this is just a demonstration of the home that Jesus was reared up in, where he was taught the scriptures. He was uh, brought up in a godly way, and he was surrounded by godly influence there. And this was something they did annually. It was customary for them, so it was not unusual for them. And so as, as they're leaving the feast, the feast is over, they've done their, their service, they, they've worshipped, and now they're going back home. They would generally travel as a large group. 
Um, and so the group would go ahead. There's, there's relatives, there's friends from the community, there's other local people. They would travel together in large caravans. Uh, that way it would be a, a protection against uh, robbers who would want to attack them on the road. It would be a way of caring for one another and helping each other with the, the daily needs of food and preparation and so on and so forth. And if people get sick or need anything, you've got a lot of help there. And so within that community, uh, there was quite a bit of freedom for people to interact, uh, for the children to go off with another family and so on. And so as they, they leave, they just assumed that Jesus was with them. Uh, and they, they thought he was there amongst the crowd of people they were traveling with. There were many relatives that he could have gone off with. He probably had cousins and uh, other siblings and so on and so forth. And so they didn't think anything of it. It was normal. And as they got a ways out, uh, they began to look for him. Perhaps after the first day's journey and they were going to bed down for the night, they say, we haven't seen him all day. Where'd he go? And so they start looking and they couldn't find him. And so they turn around and they come back. Uh, so they, they take, let's say, the day journey back to Jerusalem and they start looking for Jesus. And they look for him for the entire day and finally they find him there in the temple. And Jesus had stayed behind and he was found there talking to people in the temple there. And it, it says that they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And this was the traditional uh, priestly, rabbinic way of teaching in Judaism. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a oratory function where someone would preach, but oftentimes when there was discussions, the way to uh, have a debate was to ask questions and draw out the errors from the other person. And that took great skill. It took great understanding and wisdom. And we see that Jesus, sitting amongst the learned scholars, the, the, the leaders and the elite of his day, having that type of discussion with them as a 12-year-old boy speaks of his uh, uh, wisdom, of his intelligence and his knowledge that would have astonished people as such a young child that he, he possessed that. And, and so he's there uh, having that type of intera interaction with them and all of those who were, they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He had wisdom beyond his years, wisdom beyond his, uh, what is expected for him. And so Mary finds him there and verses 48 and 49 are kind of central to uh, the transition uh, of the Gospel of Luke. In verse 48, it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. So Mary and Joseph come back, and when his parents see him now, Luke has been fully adopted as a son of Joseph. He's identified as a child of Joseph. Uh, there's no questioning uh, that. And Mary even says here, son, why have you entreated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Jesus is the family. The, all of the original account of the virgin birth of Jesus, that's all in the past in a sense. And Jesus is fully a son of Joseph at this point. Whether he's been fully adopted in legally or how that worked, he's fully identified as a son of Mary, son of Joseph there. And Mary says, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you come with the caravan as you were supposed to? It appeared to be an act of disobedience, an act of rebellion. Um, she says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You've worried us and we couldn't find you. And <clears throat> there's no indication here of, uh, of rebellion on Jesus' part, but Mary doesn't understand what he's doing. Why did you stay behind? And then in verse 49, we have the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And they're very important words. Jesus responded and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
So now we have an identity issue here going on. In verse 48, Mary says, your father and I have been looking. Your parents have been searching for you. Your family is, 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 is missing you. And we were worried sick about you. And Jesus says, oh, well, why are you looking for me? You, you should know better because I must be in my father's house. Joseph, yes, my earthly father, yes, I accept his authority, I accept his role in his place, but my father is God in heaven. So Jesus is being identified here as the son of God for the first time. He was Jesus, the, the, the salvation is what his name meant. God is my salvation. He's holy, speaking of his character and his nature. He's righteous, he's pure, he's good. And now he is the son of God. He is very God himself. He's identified with God. God is my father. I and the father are one. This was not a disrespect to Joseph. This was not a, 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 a separation or a stiff arm to Joseph saying, ah, you call yourself my father, but you're really not. He's saying, I know my true identity. I am the son of God. I am the child that God has placed here in your womb and was born for a purpose. And so we see the identity and the purpose of this child laid throughout the entire narrative of chapter one and two by so many other people. And in this one statement, Jesus identifies his identity. I understand God is my father. I understand that I have a purpose and I have a a mission here on this earth and I must be in my father's house. Notice there that 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 word must, this is something that Jesus is going to say throughout the the gospel of Luke and Luke uses over and over again that Jesus must do these things. It speaks of that divine prerogative. Jesus is on a mission and he understands the mission even at the age of 12, it appears here. How fully he's developed it, uh, we can't be certain, but Jesus certainly understands his identity and his special calling. And then he's on a mission for God and he must be engaged in those things. And so as we continue through there, verse 50, they did not understand what he said to them. So, so they didn't really put all the pieces together yet. And then in verse 51, we see a transition occur here. That's It's subtle because it's linguistic. The verb changes. The subject of the verb prior to this was always Mary. Mary brought Jesus. Joseph and Mary did this with Jesus. They, they came and, and they brought, and Jesus was always subjected to the activity and directing of Mary and Joseph as his parents. In verse 51, the verb shifts to speak about Jesus directly. Jesus is now the subject of the verb. In verse 51, it says, and he went down with them. They did not bring him down. Jesus went with them in submission to their parental authority. And he came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. And so Jesus now becomes the central actor of the gospel narrative. There, he goes down with them, he submits them, himself to them, and he becomes the player rather than the one being led and directed. And so uh, there, that's an important shift in here because as we get through chapter 3 all the way through the rest of the gospel, Jesus is on his mission now. Jesus understands his identity and his purpose and his calling very clearly as an adult, and he begins to live that out, and he becomes the central actor. We, In fact, we actually see Joseph, uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, uh, Anna, Simeon, all of these characters of chapters one and two fade into the background and we never hear from again. We only hear of Mary one other time in Luke and it's a small little section there. So Jesus becomes the central player, the actor of this uh, account. And then finally, verse 51, uh, the end of verse 51, that Mary, his mother, 
treasured up all these things in her heart. Just as she did when Simeon spoke, uh, he, she began to treasure up all of these things and, and, and she began to, to wonder and, and consider what he was saying. Here she takes all of this information and in. she takes the, the first words presented by her son, her son's identity that we have, and she treasures them and she considers them and she hides them and she begins to fully understand the plan of God. She had it revealed back in uh, chapter one with the announcement from Gabriel She's seen the virgin uh, uh, conception take place and given birth to this child and had all of these miraculous things happening around the conception and birth of Jesus, his early life there in Jerusalem. And then as they flee to Egypt, they would have seen God's hand on them. And in returning, now they see uh, Jesus there at the temple as a young man. And it would have been very clear to her that something is very different about this child. And she begins to see the plan of God unfolding and she treasures these things in her heart. Um, as she's done previously in chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 66, and chapter 2, verse 19. She's very thoughtful about these things. And so we're invited at this point to imitate Mary in this sense. Uh, So Luke is kind of giving us the hint of how we should take the information thus far. We should avoid conclusions about what God is doing. Many of us know the story of the gospel. We know how this ends up. We know what Jesus ends up doing and, and where he goes and what the the story concludes to. But Luke is saying, hold on to those uh, conclusions that you've already got about the program of God and the purpose of God and allow them to be unfolded by the gospel. Remember, I want to convince you. I want to, uh, I want you to be convinced about the things that you've ta- been taught, Luke says. And so he says, hold off on all of your preconceived ideas And let me show you what's really happening. And as long as at this point you've identified the person of Jesus correctly, you've identified him as the fulfillment and the summation of the Old Testament prophets of the plan and program of God is all uh, wrapped up here in this one person, Jesus. He's brought forth to bring the restoration of Jerusalem and even out to all of the Gentiles. As long as we've got that conclusion that God is doing something by bringing Jesus onto the scene, we're at a good point. We're to treasure these things up at this point as we continue reading and remember who it is we're dealing with here, who it is that we've got. And so allow God to unfold the remainder of the gospel for us and teach us how that's going to take place. And then the final statement in verse 52, Jesus here simply increases in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he finds favor at the temple. Uh, He went there and was teaching. Now, certainly these teachers did not like being schooled by a 12-year-old boy. Uh, They would have had some jealousy um, and they would have... He would have been marked on their radar to some extent, but he disappears for uh, another 18 years at least before he fi- we find him back on the scene. And so uh, it, it, the, the, the people were astonished at him. They didn't know what to do with him. And so as he kind of separates himself from that public scene as a young child, waiting for that right moment, he, he grows. It says that he grows in knowledge. He grows in wisdom and in stature. So in all the ways that you and I are supposed to grow, Jesus grew. It's a great time for us to to just take a moment and say, Jesus was fully human. Uh, We often can look at Jesus and think, well, he's God. Of course he can do all of these things. But it tells us in Philippians 2 that he set aside his divine identity. He didn't stop being divine. He didn't lose his divine nature, stop being God. But he added on a human nature. He added on humanity to that divine nature. And so he became fully human and subjected himself to the human condition. 
And so he's not fallen in the sense that we are. He's not sinful in the sense that we are. But he's limited in his understanding. He's limited in his strength. He's limited in his uh, physical abilities, just in the same way you and I are. And Jesus lived it out perfectly. So he increased in wisdom through the study of the scriptures with his parents, through the participation in the temple, through all of his activities. He uh, increased in stature. He grew physically. He, he uh, did the proper things. And he found favor with God and with man. He conducted himself in an appropriate and a, a godly way that others would have looked at and appreciated. He loved others. He cared for others. He served them. He worshiped God appropriately. He was uh, amenable and affable. He was, he, was a, he was a wonderful young man, is the way we would look at Jesus. And so uh, we're left with some significant questions here. Uh, where we end on a very positive account, but we're left with some very significant questions. How would this redemption be accomplished? Now that the Messiah is present, how does God accomplish the redemption of Jerusalem? How is God bringing all of Israel back and fulfilling his promises? How is God reaching out to all of the Gentiles that the whole, all of the nations would be blessed? How is God doing this? How, how will many rise and fall? How are the people going to be sifted? And how is Jesus' ministry and life going to manifest all of these things? Because Jesus will cause some to rise and some to fall. And we're going to see people shaken and, and sifted and their true hearts revealed. But how's that exactly going to take place? And then finally, we're left with the question of, is Israel herself going to recognize and respond? Because this is the promised Messiah that the entire Old Testament has been building up to. So how will Israel respond to this? Will Israel receive her Messiah just as Simeon had announced, as Anna had proclaimed? Would would Israel receive it, uh, Jesus with the same fervor, with the same excitement and joy and thankfulness that Anna and Simeon and these other characters have done? And so as we come to the end of chapter two, there's a lot of questions laid out on the table for us that were introduced in the first couple chapters that the rest of the gospel seek to answer. God's on purpose here. God has a plan and God is working out that plan through the life of Jesus. He's laid it out from before the foundations of the world. And we're now at the seminal point of this plan, the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah is bringing forth redemption. And so as we move forward in the gospel of Luke, we're going to be getting a new section in our next study, beginning in chapter three, where we look at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus begins now, uh, we, we see him picking up as an adult and we see uh, John coming and fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. And we begin to see the plan of God start to unfold in the life of Jesus. And so stick with us for next time uh, as we begin in chapter three of the gospel of Luke. But make sure you like this episode. Uh, give us five stars. That helps to, to get it out there for other people. Uh, subscribe so you can uh, know when the next episodes are posted. And, and give us a response if you're, if you're being blessed by this. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can visit our website at mathetai.org where you can see what we're doing in ministry. Uh, you can hear about the ministry of Mathetai and, and look at our other avenues of participation and, um, <clears throat> and get involved with what the Lord's doing through Mathetai. And uh, we hope to see you around soon. We'll check with you again next time here on the Math Thai Podcast.